0: Speaking of chaos, over the last several weeks, the world has watched as tensions increased between Russia and Ukraine. These tensions released into an all-out invasion by Russia that brought about terror and violence in Ukraine. Leaders in the West are debating how to respond, and the media is bringing us rapid updates with varying degrees of veracity. It's easy to get caught up in the whirlwind of reporting, politics, and human suffering, Many of us have found it disorienting to navigate this situation, both as citizens in a democratic republic and as Christians. That's why I'm glad to welcome William Wolfe as my guest on today's show to help us by bringing some clarity to these current events and provide an example of a discerning response. William had over a decade of experience working in the federal government. He was a legislative assistant for three different members of Congress, the director of house affairs for the U S department of state. And finally, as the deputy assistant secretary of defense for house affairs at the Pentagon, he currently lives in Louisville, Kentucky and is pursuing a master of divinity from the Southern Baptist theological seminary for our younger guy. William has an incredible story and you can read his whole bio in my show notes. I definitely recommend it. I appreciate the audience here on filter so much, and I want to continue bringing you better quality and more content. So I'm excited to share that you can now send voice messages to Filter to share your thoughts and reflections on our episodes. If you've ever been listening to one of my conversations with a guest and had a question or a thought pop up into your head, well, you can now share those by sending me a voice message. This is going to be awesome because number one, I want to hear from you guys, the listeners and audience, And also because I'll be sharing select messages that are sent through, uh, whether they be thoughts, questions, or messages uh, to interact with those and to answer those uh, questions and new bonus episodes that I'll be releasing in between the regular episodes. So if you've been listening to filter and you have a question about one of the episodes, a question about this episode, if you have thoughts that you'd like to share and interact with the show, I'd love for you to do that. So send in your questions and reflections through the link that is in the description of this podcast, or go to the link that I'll have in the show notes as well. And you can follow through there to go to Anchor and leave me a one minute voice message. Anchor will allow you to leave up to a one minute message. Uh, It's as easy as sending and submitting a voicemail whenever you call somebody. Lastly, before we dive into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list if you have not done that already so that you can get all of the latest content sent directly into your inbox just visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website also be sure that you're subscribed to filter wherever you get your podcast so that you don't miss out on any future episodes if you're helped by this content we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review or shared the show with your friends leave filter a five-star review on spotify and on apple podcasts and also write a review on apple podcast it'll only take a minute of your time and whenever you take these simple steps it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into my conversation with William Wolfe. William, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Good to be here. Well, glad to, I'm glad to have you on here. been looking forward to it. Uh, we've been uh, interacting on Twitter a little bit. I've been following you now for a while and uh, really enjoyed it. And so I've uh, been looking forward to having you on and getting to talk to you. We're going to be talking about some... Current events, and uh, you know we'll see what all we get into, but I thought it'd be interesting for us to start by just talking about your story. Tell us about your story, uh, both what you're doing now but also how you got to where you are now, uh, what you did in your past and uh, and how that helps us to uh, understand your unique perspective on the current events around Russia and ukraine
1: Sure, thanks well I'm coming to you currently live from the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and if you had asked me would I ever find myself as an in-person student at a Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, when I was, I don't know, 20 years old, I probably would have, I wouldn't have had a category for what you were asking me. And so how, how I've gotten to where I am is, of course, only by the grace and the sovereign providence of our good and heavenly father. So I uh, became a Christian out of college, actually, uh, after experiencing some, some tough times and some deep loss of my younger brother when he was 15 and I was uh, 22 Um, and through dealing with that grief from a, from the perspective of a false convert, somebody thought I was a Christian, but I wasn't. uh, I ended up leading me by God's grace to an interaction with uh, Mark Dever in uh, Washington, DC. And he's a pastor of Capitol Baptist church there. And he was kind enough to tell me uh, just because I said a prayer when I was nine years old, uh, that didn't necessarily make me a Christian. And the way that I was living my life at the time, to him, indicated that I probably wasn't. Uh, And God used that interaction. um, And by reading the book of Isaiah, I believe, to bring me to repentance and faith. And that was at the end of 2011. And then he just sort of blew open all the doors and brought me to our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., to join Capitol Hill Baptist Church. That was the main reason I moved there. And then I needed to work. You know, if a man doesn't work, he won't eat. So I uh, actually got a job waiting tables at a, at a PF change to hold me over while I pursued work on Capitol Hill. And uh, I ended up working for a couple different members of Congress, working as a legislative staffer in their offices for a member of Congress from North Dakota, from North Carolina, for, for Virginia. So I became acquainted with how Congress works, how the legislative process works, our politics in our country. I joke that I spent um, two years reading constituent mail from the 5th District of North Carolina, which is a pretty rural district, and uh, it radicalized me <laughs> because <laughs> you know o- only unhappy people write in. But um, after working for, for a few members of Congress, I worked at a political organization called Heritage Action, which combined grassroots and standard government relations advocacy to sort of actualize conservative policies on behalf of the uh, conservative base out there in the country in tandem with the Heritage Foundation. And then after Trump won in 2016, for someone like me, this was the opportunity to work in the administration to serve the American people, to help advance policies that I believed would lead to better life opportunities for those in our country, for everyone, whether you voted for him or not. And so I took that opportunity. I volunteered on the Presidential Transition Organization. And by doing that, I got my name on a list for the State Department. Uh, It's funny, I had an opportunity, a guaranteed spot at the Department of Agriculture, and I turned that down for a possible spot at the Department of State, and Mm -hmm. by God's grace, it worked out. So I did legislative affairs for the State Department for about three years. I ultimately became our director of House Affairs, so I was one of the the main liaison points where the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which oversees the Department of State, their policies, their priorities, um, the the money, the way they use their money. And so I worked with Congress day in, day out. i prepped ambassadors for hearings. I don't know if you've ever watched congressional hearings, but you'll see this row of people sitting behind the main witness. Well, that was usually me, part of that row. And uh, then I had an opportunity to go over to the Pentagon and do the same thing, but at a higher level. I was a deputy assistant secretary of defense for house affairs in the office of the secretary of defense um, at the Pentagon. And uh, it it was an excellent opportunity to help lead our team, myself and the Senate, My Senate counterpart oversaw a team of about 60 folks who engaged and represented the Department of Defense before the House Armed Services Committee um, on every policy issue pertaining to our military actions under the sun and also helping us get past the annual National Defense Authorization Act. So I've been working in and with Congress for over a decade. I've worked in the national security space in particular for about four years, foreign affairs, national security. And then when my, uh, my time in the administration came to an end, I took a big uh, transition, and I did a pastoral internship at my church, and then I came here to Southern Seminary to finish my MDiv, uh, and to look at doing a, a PhD in Christian Ethics and Public Theology. So that's where I am now. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's quite the journey, and uh, and yeah, you never know which way God's going to take you in life. Uh, sure. But I mean, that's true. Just listening to your story, yeah, uh, <clears throat> as a as just an ordinary person. Yeah, you know, I'm. I'm hearing uh, all these different departments and and titles, and uh, it starts to just seem a little overwhelming. Like, sorry, oh, well, like, that. like, oh, great, well, but I have no idea what that means. So, okay, for, for okay. the other ordinary folk like me, uh, yeah. So, your job at the Pentagon, working with defense in the day to day, what did that mean? You, you explained okay. before you you'd be helping ambassadors prep for their hearings, um, mm-hmm. but. What you're doing in the Pentagon, your, your last position that you had, which I think mm-hmm. will probably be like the most relevant to talking about the issues we're talking about today. Uh, speaking yeah. of, you know, State Department of Defense, um, yeah. In the day to day, what did that look like? What did that mean? What you were doing well, there?
1: Sure, both the jobs uh, very relevant uh, to this to this issue. Um, I liaisoned, I coordinated, with I talked to. There's a better. I talked to Congress um, on behalf of the executive branch agency. So um, Congress oversees the executive branch. They're the ones who provide them the money and give them the, the, the policy priority. So they say, do this, don't do that. Spend your money this way, don't spend it that way. And then they, they oversee them. So they haul them up for hearings. So I, I emailed back and forth with congressional staffers very regularly, but I also spoke directly with members of Congress as well. Um, And and at the Department of Defense, at the Pentagon, it was very similar. I prepped generals, so I'd be prepping prepping two, three, uh, you know, four-star generals for appearing before their hearings, coordinating um, within what's called the interagency. And that just means the Department of Defense, the State Department, uh, the National Security Council, our intelligence agencies, FBI, you know, CIA, DIA, I don't mean to be giving too many acronyms there, but that's that's so um, when Congress got mad at what the Trump administration was doing, whether at state or DOD, I was I would be one of the first people to find out about it.
0: Yeah. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. What a privilege. You were the you were the first whipping boy. That's right. (laughs) Um, So what were some of the um, primary experiences or things that you got to be a part of? during your time working in government and the administration that really stick out to you, uh, that your memories will carry with you. The kind of stuff that you like to talk about over drinks.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a Baptist, so the drinks is coffee,
0: but yeah. coffee, <laughs> there we go.
1: Yeah, coffee tea, yeah. whatever floats your boat. Um, in case Dr. Mueller sees this, which you probably won't, but, um, uh, I'll tell you, man, he loves this podcast. Best- oh, fantastic. He loves it. Right yeah. After- he's our right biggest fan. Briefing. Um, <laughs> One of the most amazing things I had an opportunity to do was to be a, a staffer on a congressional delegation. That's when members of Congress get together and take trips overseas. Um, the the shorthand for that is CODEL, Congressional Delegation. And when I was working at the State Department in 2019, it was the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion Mm. in Europe, which ultimately Mm -hmm. turned the tide of World War II, the invasion um, in Normandy, France on Omaha Beach. Um, And I had the distinct privilege and opportunity to travel over to that with a massive congressional delegation of 60 plus members from the House of Representatives led by the Speaker of the House, who was still Nancy Pelosi at the time, but bipartisan Republicans, Democrats. There's about a dozen senators as well So I had the opportunity opportunity to be out at the 75th celebration with our veterans. And it was probably the last big one with a substantial gathering of um, World War II veterans, just given their age and their stage. So to be there at that historic um, landscape and that place, as we consider the sacrifices that were made by those young soldiers um, Mm -hmm. to, to bring an end to the horrors of World War II. And yeah. to, to see that firsthand, I also had a chance to visit a World War One uh, cemetery when I was there as well. So that was that would probably be the top um, one. A second yeah. one would be I um I had the privilege, I guess you could call it, of helping spearhead the the first ever public congressional hearing we did on <laughs> what was then the Afghanistan peace deal. We we secured this. This negotiated agreement between the Taliban, the Afghan government, the United States. And uh we were being threatened with subpoenas, which is you know sort of a legal enforcement mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was able to help negotiate away a subpoena and get our um our special representative, Khalil Azad, up along with um representatives from the Department of Defense, Department of State to testify on that. It was that was a historic moment, unfortunately. That hasn't gone as we as we would have hoped it would. That agreement has yeah. been shattered, and the Taliban's taken over the country. Wow! So it's interesting even to reflect on that. As you ask me, how temporary some of these gains can be uh, in foreign policy and in the international space, and just the brutal realism of a world where there are many men and organizations, Putin, the Taliban, who still view violence as their means to power and control.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in two, in 2015 and 16, um, I was not a fan of Trump, um, and was very much, uh, not wanting him to be the nominee and I didn't vote for him. Um, but, uh, but I hope for the best, just like I do with, with any, with any president, cause they're our leader. I want, <laughs> I want them to do well. Um, one of the first things, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> one of the first things that uh impressed me in his administration was foreign policy mm-hmm. and uh and, and particularly pursuing peace uh over hawkish policies that would uh produce more bloodshed and Absolutely. so yeah i think so, so i'm really interested in hearing about um your participation in in the afghanistan peace deal and, and so on especially now with that being a few years in the past seeing how things went um what do you see what, what was the major problem why did what did, was the plan followed and the plan just didn't work out as it was uh, supposed to was the original plan abandoned um why did in your reading and from your experience why did the afghanistan withdrawal because uh, I, I think even these things are you know are a part of the context of where we are now with russia ukraine um why did the afghanistan withdrawal turn out to be such a debacle
1: yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I didn't I didn't necessarily refresh myself on the details of that one for this conversation. <laughs> I was looking more heavily at the, the state of play in, in Ukraine and Russia, but in yeah. general scopes, uh look, the, the reality was we had been fighting in Afghanistan for 20 years. And the American uh, the American public were, were growing frustrated with the continued loss of, of American blood and treasure, lives and money. Um, in Afghanistan, and quite frankly, one of the biggest issues there, and this plays into issues with Ukraine, is that the Afghanistan government, the people, not the Taliban, but the the civil government representatives and individuals never displayed a real commitment to um, a non-corrupt vision of what we would understand to be sort of Western liberal democracy. Their, Their established civic government was Thoroughly corrupt and ineffectual, we were training and equipping the Afghan National Security Forces to try to help them to be a bulwark against um, the Taliban. And you know, one of our one of our um, lines in the sand, our quest for the Taliban, if they wanted to come to the table, is that they would stop, um, you know, carrying themselves as a terrorist organization, either harboring Al Qaeda or committing acts of terror. The Taliban are certainly more than just a terrorist organization. Uh, though they do engage in terror, they are an intricate political entity in Afghanistan with quite a bit of support from a variety of people in the country. So Mm. the Taliban's long game was just to wait us out. Now, Now, the Trump administration, you know, sought to negotiate a deal between the Taliban, between the Afghanistan national government, between us, between our NATO partners and allies who had been involved in this fight with us. Um, that, would, that would put everybody on, on a better footing for peace, but it, it did need to be enforced, and it, we needed to have a stable and secure presence, a, a minimal presence, but a stable and secure presence, and if I'm remembering correctly, uh, President Biden just, uh, you know, we had started uh, some of a drawdown, but then he just accelerated that drawdown without the, without anticipating, without knowing, I guess our intel was off, which quite frankly, you know, to those who are listening to this, um, I I can say this without divulging anything classified or otherwise, but um, if you're skeptical of our intelligence agencies after working hand in hand with them for four years, I would just uh, encourage you in that skepticism. (laughs) So, um, you know, I think that sometimes if, you question the nature of the the official reports you hear in the united states you can get labeled conspiracy theorists but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of guesswork going on and uh so i think faulty intelligence reports um led to overconfidence we had an accelerated drawdown that i don't believe the afghanistan national government was anticipating and the taliban seized on the vacuum and rolled through and at that point um unless we're about to recommit uh, a strength of forces in order to roll them back and it essentially engage into a hot war again, we, we had lost the moment. I think we underestimated the Taliban's absolute resolve to retake the country in the name of Islam, in the name of jihad, and they're, they're motivated. They're motivated not just by a worldview, they're motivated by a religious view. And that's something that I think Americans have really underestimated still need to wrestle with um, vis-a-vis uh, Islamic countries
0: yeah yeah hard to believe that that was less than a year ago yeah that that went down and happened and uh here we are with another are. with another uh foreign policy crisis on our hands this one mm-hmm. um just
1: uh, from I, one to the next
0: yeah yeah you know uh, i this will one, say
1: back yeah. to your trump point you know i wasn't i was um i was originally a cruise guy in the primary but i, I didn't have much great qualms about trump and Actually, Aaron, if I could make this point to you here briefly, and to anyone listening, mm-hmm. uh, you have to understand that um, th- there's nobody out there. There's no there's no pope who picks the Republican nominee. It's it's a process, and it's the Republican primary voters, state by state. I'm yeah. already seeing people, even Christian leaders, sort of weep and wail and, and render rend their garments at the thought of Trump in 2024. To which I I want to say to them you have no control over the outcome here, because it will be the Republican primary voters. And let me tell you right now, I believe that if Trump wants the nomination in 24, the nomination will be his in the same day that it was in 2016. And my point here is, there is a large constituency in in the United States of America that leftists and even conservative Christians at the more elite and institutional levels are just sort of failing to understand where these people are politically. So mm. that'd be a, a point I'd make.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And uh, and and yeah, my my views uh, and how they changed over the course of his administration and all that, uh, you know, could be for another conversation. Uh, sure. But I I definitely agree with you. I think that um, nearly all of our institutions, whether they be sec- secular or Christian, mm-hmm. are really really misunderstanding um, mm-hmm. the the yeah the the hardcore Trump base, but even the base that kind of grew outside the hardcore which were more of like uh later late to buy on sure um yeah i i agree with what you said um but yeah so less than a year since afghanistan now here we are uh russia has invaded ukraine there's a lot going on out there uh i mean in the has it even been a week yet since they invaded it's been
1: about a week today
0: yeah uh, it's been about a week today it feels like it's been 2 months uh there's already been a lot of uh, media attention to it, debates on uh, Twitter and elsewhere. Can you help us understand the context that some of the context that led to this previous to even just a week ago or even just a month ago? Because about a month ago, we started to see Putin making some some moves that seemed more aggressive uh, before he actually uh, invaded or started shelling any uh, bases or cities. What was some of the context that led to the situation?
1: Sure. I'll, I'll try to keep it sort of brief and top line. But historically, one of the main most important uh, pieces of context is NATO expansion, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, which is a treaty that was, um, that was formed immediately after World War II uh, with the United States, Great Britain and a variety of other countries. And that has, that expanded, it's a security cooperation, it's an international treaty, it's a commitment to help defend each other's borders and preserve <clears throat> coming out of, you know, World War II, what people hope to be a new world order of liberal democracy and peace. And uh, NATO, you know, served as a bulwark against the USSR, the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union fell, um, there were conversations between then Premier Gorbachev and NATO in the United States that when Germany reunited and joined NATO, that that would be the end of NATO expansion. Look, you have to understand that Russia views the West as, as sort of an existential threat and great power competition. Uh, and, and we have similarly viewed them that way, certainly during the Cold War and the mm-hmm. fight against communism. But with the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union, the realignment that we've been living in and under for the last 30 years, uh, NATO NATO expansion has continued to provoke Russia. I'm just giving a fact. I'm not saying whether it should or shouldn't provoke Russia, but yeah. if you want to try to understand it, if, think about it from this perspective. How would the United States feel if um, one of our ex- – if, if China uh, – formed a deal with mexico and put a bunch of you know troops and and uh heavy uh, weaponry on our southern border we wouldn't like yeah. that we would view that as a threat yeah. so um continued nato expansion all the way up to the border of russia with estonia latvia etc has, has frustrated them now my take on putin this is just my take people would disagree with it i don't view putin as somebody who's trying to reconstruct the soviet union i view putin in, in a more sort of historical Russia imperialist Czar type character. He doesn't want to make Ukraine uh, a sort of a subservient state. He wants to reincorporate it into historic Russia. He thinks it belongs to them. So um, so NATO expansion ha- has aggravated Russia um, and many people have argued that the best thing that we could have done for Ukraine was to help make them a neutral state that is neither aggravating Russia nor fully committed to the West, and I would argue it's a good thing Ukraine is not in NATO right now, because then we would be committed to defending them um, from a full military perspective. Um, So you've got NATO expansion, and then, you know, you have historic tensions between sections of Ukraine that are heavily populated by Russian, um, by Russian people. So whether that's Crimea in the south or the Donbass region, that's more on the northeastern corner, you know, there's been fighting, there's been pro-Russian separatist movements. That's true. Russia. Uh, you know, Putin has totally lied about, you know, neo-Nazis and, and all this stuff. But there are pro-Russian um, separatist movements that Putin has played and taken to his advantage. So uh, that's that's certainly played into the context and then I just, I would have to say, you know, historic weakness from the West. Um, and I think, as you mentioned, uh, the way that there have been a variety of foreign policy disasters under this administration, and we think back to what potentially attracted Trump to a large swath of the American people was that he, he appeared strong. You know, this is class of sort of Reagan-esque peace through strength, and coupled with a clear moral, uh, a clear moral superiority. You know, I think one of the ways we won the the Soviet, the battle of the Soviet Union was we presented a better moral alternative of a way to live, and we projected peace through strength. I'm not convinced either one of those are happening under the Biden administration.
0: Yeah, so yeah, I want to go into more uh, of that context in a little bit, uh, particularly around like the the NATO issue and so on. But um, recently at CPAC, you know, Trump said Putin invaded or started war under bush he started war under obama Mm -hmm. he didn't do anything while i was there and now he started war again uh Mm -hmm. seemingly implying by that that you know he had done something special or different that uh either either kept putin appeased uh, happy uh through good diplomacy or afraid to overstep his boundaries Mm -hmm. uh Is he making, would you back up his implication there? Was there something different and more effective in the Trump administration foreign policy that would have prevented something like this from happening now? Uh, Or was it just, did it really not have as much to do with Trump uh, and more Putin seeing right now to be more, uh, you know, better uh, opportunity?
1: Yeah. Well, from the outset, let me say that's sort of like shaking a crystal, you know, magic ball, right? You know, I can't give you a definitive answer one way or another. So this is, yeah. this is speculation. As um, yeah. there was uh, there's a preacher in and around the DC area, Lon Solomon at McLean Bible Church way back in the day. He's gone. Well, not way back in the day. He's not there anymore. But he had these little clips on uh, the radio where he said uh, he would talk about the gospel or, or the Bible or Jesus. And then he finished saying, not a sermon, just a thought. So this is not a sermon. It's just a thought on this. But two points are really important on this energy and power. Under the Trump administration, we were we were, um, I would say, ruthlessly committed to American energy independence. And we achieved that. Uh, we were, you know, we were moving forward with the Keystone XL pipeline. We became a net exporter of uh, liquefied natural gas. Uh, you know, energy prices were down. We helped achieve a historic peace deal in the Middle East. Um, and we were threatening Sanctions on this is very important. The Nord Stream Two pipeline that Russia, which is a gas pipeline that Russia has running through a northern route through the Baltic Sea down into Germany, and and I have to say, in terms of context, look, nobody made Putin roll tanks into Ukraine. Nobody made him start la- launching fire, you know, on Kherson on Kiev, um, mm-hmm. nothing like that. But Germany plays a big part in this. Germany in entertaining the Nord Stream Two pipeline. Which were it to become fully operational, which it isn't yet, Um, but at this point, Putin, I think, believed that it would be. They have a a southern pipeline that goes through Ukraine that they can completely shut off. So during the Trump administration, we projected power, we pursued energy independence, we pressured Germany to do the right thing in regards to Nord Stream 2. And uh, I believe that we were led by and large by serious individuals in our national security apparatus uh, with some potentially notable exceptions. So um, what that has to do with Trump vis-a-vis Putin, I, I'm not in Putin's psyche, I can't say. Yeah. I will say that we have, I, I would argue, thoroughly hamstrung ourselves as an American people and even as Christians to, in, in order to think clearly about this with four years of the nonsense of the Russian collusion narrative. When, when in fact, the this, this, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be overtly political, but these are, these are facts that it's the Clintons and it's the Bidens who have been involved in corruption in Ukraine historically. And uh, so I think that all that to say is when Biden came into office, he relaxed certain policies and pursued a one-two punch of canceling Keystone XL pipeline and and stopping the sanctions on Nord Stream 2, projecting historic weakness, uh, I think helps Putin feel like, well, now's the time I can roll uh, what are they going to
0: do yeah yeah you know and i don't want to fall into the logical fallacy of uh you know after therefore because of sure um, exactly
1: this but, is like i said speculation
0: yeah yeah but it does seem it, it is really hard to not look at the sequence of events the changes in foreign policy like you pointed out too that's something that I hadn't considered until a little bit later the the energy issues and how those affected this it's really hard to not see all that and consider that has to have something to do with it the it's, these had the, all these things had to have something to do with putin's uh calculations it, sure it, um they seem to make a lot more sense than some of the other theories one of the other theories that I wanted to bring up and, and get your thoughts on was was going back to nato mm-hmm. um one of the main talking points that I've heard from people and particularly from so the past week has been really disorienting for me uh, as i've been arguing with a lot of people who i normally am like on the same side with if that makes sense mm-hmm. uh but instead of finding myself like really i'm like well we're, we're not on the same side of this issue even though we usually are on other issues uh when it comes to this welcome because- to
1: every day of my life on just about every issue
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so uh yeah arguing with people who um are taking and i'd say maybe the, the poster child for this position would be like tucker carlson right now and all of his sure. responses you know he's like He's like, we need to stop provoking Putin, and we need to stop poking at him, and we need to stop. You know, we're really the ones the wrong. The West is the ones in the wrong because we were expanding NATO, and we wouldn't commit to not allowing Ukraine into NATO, and so that's why he's doing this. I started hearing people on Twitter argue the same point, and I tried to push back and say, "Is, is the NATO issue something really that would justify, so, really an issue that would justify him launching an invasion?" into mm-hmm. ukraine and and you know once he took that step shouldn't we just say okay he's in the wrong now full stop regardless of the nato issue going into it um on top of that it just it, is that a question we, for me is that what you're saying you think n- well i'm saying I, I i don't agree with this position the, this theory no that says that it, uh that our meddling with nato in ukraine is the reason that putin invaded because i just i don't think it makes sense number one because if he's so concerned about NATO mm-hmm. being on his borders, why would he move his borders closer to NATO by and by absorbing Ukraine, which would then literally put his eastern border right up against um NATO countries? Right, right now Ukraine is a buffer. Uh, also, it seems as though invading the nation that's in question would really undercut your argument for why they don't need to be a part of NATO. Um, and then the third thing that I, I think this theory doesn't make sense is that uh as as a defense of russia in a way is that is that yeah these uh these debates then still don't seem enough of a provocation to justify a full-scale violent invasion Mm -hmm. so so that's my issue with this uh theory that i've been seeing really floated around a lot in right-wing twitter and media lately what do you think uh, in terms of the NATO theory for why uh, Putin has been taking these steps? Do you think sure. that it really satisfies?
1: Well, well, at the at the outset, you asked me about context, right? So, and so, yeah. I I set forth the the idea of NATO expansion as a key piece of the context of the overall mm-hmm. issue, right? So, I, I think that it's undeniably part of the context, and um, I agree with
0: that. I agree with okay, the context so, okay. part. Yeah
1: so also this is really important right i was a history major history is complicated history complex history is mm-hmm. moving um as you're living in history it's a it's unfolding live um we should askew mono mono explanations right so push back on the the single neat tidy explanation. so am i going to say that um a history of nato expansion is the only reason why Putin rolled tanks into Ukraine? No, but I, I am going to say that you cannot ignore that context, and that if you don't if you don't deal with it, honestly, I think you will be finding yourself lacking in an overall understanding of what's happening right now. And there there have been very serious foreign policy thinkers, you know, through the last decade who who have warned of this, from Henry Kissinger to Mearsheimer, you know, the, these um, and George Kennan his, you know. Back in 1998, he warned that NATO expansion was a tragic mistake and that would ultimately provoke a bad reaction from Russia. And um, there have been other scholars who have warned that as we lead Ukraine down the path of potential NATO, um, NATO treaty ascension, that we're just leading them down the path to get wrecked. And then who's going to be there to take care of them when they get wrecked? Nobody. It's hard to argue that's not what's happening right now now look Mm. are we going to are we going to arm them yes germany is sending them munitions we're sending them you know shoulder launching missile platforms to fight back anti-tank artillery etc um but we're not going to commit troops on the ground In, in, in many ways the ukrainian people are are on their own in combination with whatever um weapons that we supply to them so Again, I don't think you can, you can't count, you can't count that out. And then what does Putin think about it in terms of Ukraine vis-a-vis NATO, Putin 100%, if he has to choose between Ukraine being a part of NATO and Ukraine being a part of Russia, he's going to choose it being a part of Russia, even if that means, you know, on the the further Western border, Romania, Hungary, etc., it does border nato countries because mm-hmm. for him to succeed in what i think is his objective of regime change um in terms of getting in a president who is entirely pro putin um or just reincorporating it into russia um I-, I think that for him is a big enough victory that it ends the that ends the nato conversation it's over that
0: yeah yeah okay i agree with that and and, and that makes a lot of sense <laughs> I think a lot of people are also concerned about uh, media manipulation and they're, they're concerned about propaganda and there's surely a lot of propaganda coming out right now from both sides. There's a lot of Russian propaganda out there and there's plenty of propaganda on the Ukrainian side too. Uh, You know, there's already been a lot of stories just in the first week that have been debunked turned out to not be true. um, Or even if they're not just outright falsehoods kind of, manipulating uh, images and storylines and so on. Um, So how do we discern our response to this Russia-Ukraine war when our corporate media has proven themselves to be uh, quite unreliable?
1: That's a fantastic question. And I think, quite frankly, um, Christian interaction with media reporting is one of the most crucial and underdeveloped areas of life of daily discipleship that we need to grow in i i have worked over the last decade to try to not get swept up in what i call the narrative i use that phrase a lot i use the narrative a lot because the truth is that there is a narrative that's being spun i I was i was down at cpac with uh with the work that i do with the freedom center out of liberty university and i watched i watched on tv as CNN, and I'm not picking on CNN on this because every other major news network there too, reported the Snake Island event, you know, where they said, you know, pound sand, Russian warship. And then they said all 13 soldiers died. They're all still alive. Uh, you know, that was, and they didn't, it's interesting, you'll, you'll notice sometimes these major news networks, they'll report things and they'll say, we were unable to verify this with independent sources or our own sources. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll just report things that, potentially fit the narrative more conveniently without that disclaimer. And I never heard that disclaimer on, on that event. And so it became, now we, we've rolled it back, but who knows what else we've bought? The ghost of Kiev, I believe has been disproven entirely. Um, so Christians need to be very careful. I would say in this situation to not get caught up in the media narrative that's coming from CNN, MSNBC, mainstream sources, nor necessarily buying into a more monocausal explanation from like a Tucker Carlson, which, you know, I'm not nearly as down on Tucker Carlson as a lot of people are. Um, you know, I think he raises a lot of good questions and he is one who is willing often to counter the narrative, but of course he has his own perspectives as well. So all that to say, I would urge caution. And one thing in our social media age, I think Christians and just Americans people haven't wrestled with is that you can't know everything that you think you can know because of the access to the news that you have. You can watch news for 10 hours straight. I saw David Axelrod, he's a former advisor, senior advisor, political advisor to President Obama. He had a tweet saying that he didn't feel like he could turn the TV off and go to bed because you didn't want to miss out on anything. And so even if you turn the TV off, you can open your phone and start scrolling through a news feed on Twitter or anything else. So it gives us this idea that we can have a far more comprehensive understanding of the situation than we really can, particularly during the fog of war. There's going to be uh, a ton of misreporting on casualties. There's going to be a ton of misreporting on what's happening on the ground. Um, Factual items such as the Ukrainian government arming citizens with AR-15s will be reported a certain way, and then there will be no follow-up on uh, potential other issues with that, which as I've dug into this, it seems like there's quite a bit of concern in Kiev currently um, of armed criminals who are you know, engaging in uh, gang fights with each other, because Russia is still fairly far from Kiev. So in the capital city right now, um, there, there's not heavy Russian-on-Ukraine fighting in any way, shape, or form, and yet all the civilians have been given AR-15s, including the gangs and the criminals. And so if you get some in-person reporting on the ground there, you'll hear that crime is spiking, and there's been some ill effects of actions taken by the Zelensky administration. So yeah. all that to say, I plead and I urge caution and uh, to understand that things are not as simple. It's not as simple as Zelensky you know, awesome, Putin, awful, you know, in broad strokes. Sure. But there's a lot more going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like the way you put that. I think that we need, we do need to think a lot more carefully with more complexity and more nuance to the whole situation. The problem that I see is a lot of people who are, uh, who have become really reactionary because they're so disillusioned by all of the media manipulation and lies we've seen over the past couple of years through COVID, <sighs> um different other uh racial events um mm-hmm. riding and so on you know they they just been lied to over and over and over and over again and right. so they become uh, almost reactionary to the point to where if they say x then i'm going to respond y
1: sure sure
0: and so they've almost responded so much to the point of like well if you say zelensky good i'm going to say zelensky bad mm-hmm. is is have you seen that as well is do you think that's like kind of the opposite dish that we need to be sure we don't fall into
1: yeah, sure no doubt Well, actually no not at all what are you talking about i completely disagree no i'm kidding, I'm kidding. no <laughs> it's okay um, you
0: got freedom to disagree on this i was
1: i was doing the thing but um, yeah look i mean it's hard I, I kind of will i will say with a grain of salt half joking with a grain of salt that you know if the mainstream media says something, you're probably better off believing the opposite. <laughs> you know, I, I will say that generally. And, and I and I mean that primarily to try to spur people on to critical thinking and independent research as, as much as you can. Um, and that goes both ways. So the problem, Aaron, is that, it, again, I'll go back to the narrative. The narrative is that Zelensky is this once-in-a-generation Hero of the moment, you know, portraying this, you know, inestimable courage as he bravely leads the Ukrainian people against invading Russian forces and evangelical leaders are just quite frankly, I would say gushing over him in unbecoming uh, manners. Which And, yeah. this, and so, so if I want to stop and think about who Zelensky really is and what he's doing and how I should think about him, that's not being, me being reactionary. Um, though I will say that if if all I see are sort of like puff pieces on the courage of Zelensky, that is going to make me wonder, well, well, what more should I know about?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: interestingly, Zelensky, you know, first of all, keep in mind, the guy is an actor. And, and if you think that he is not bringing all of his acting capabilities to bear on this situation, I think we would be naive. Uh, yeah. Second is that Zelensky has a historic support for all sorts of things that Christians would find objectionable, which I find to be a very important piece in this because I do not deny that he is showing courage. He's staying with his people. When the vast majority of other political leaders in a situa- situation like this would have fled the country and yielded it um, to you know, the invading power, Zelensky is 100% putting his life on his lot, on the line, as best as I can tell to stay and to stand with his people so he's rising to the moment he's displaying courage and yet he he's pretty morally objectionable character which is just fascinating to me to see how um certain evangelical leaders can do the calculation or maybe they don't even know um to to heat praise on him now but they found no way to do such a calculation uh for donald trump <laughs> you know so uh, i think that i think or john this- MacArthur or John MacArthur or you know yeah. who well well John is I think a man of upstanding moral character but um yeah well, I mean so I, it,
0: his courage you know where he stood up yeah um to the Los Angeles city government yeah exactly um so, I think cuz I think that's what they're responding to they're they're responding to even if it is a kind of whitewashed picture they're responding to a picture of courage
1: sure
0: um and especially manly courage right, right? like mm-hmm. people are also like really impressed with Zelensky's uh display of masculinity through this which which, once again, like okay, maybe some of it's acting, but some mm-hmm. of it's admirable too because he's staying in sure. in Kiev. Um, yeah. But yeah, none of that masculine courage was admired in MacArthur.
1: Yeah, that's right, that's right. So um, don't don't be don't be reactionary for the sake of being reactionary. I would say yeah. that you know that's not a Christian virtue. You know, don't call conspiracy everything that this, this these people call conspiracy. Um, Christians of all people should be truth seekers because we serve a God of truth and the classic worldview, all all truth is God's truth. And uh, so I think also Christians should display a measured thoughtfulness of how we engage in things without being swept up in every passing wind of public opinion. I think that's a distinctly Christian virtue that unfortunately I think has not been on display much in our leadership um, in the evangelical world over the last five, six years, um, you know, too often pastors sound like they're just baptizing CNN talking points, you know, painting them with some thin veneer of Christian ease and then yeah. serving them up to their people on a Sunday morning. And that's not helpful or thoughtful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all that. The one, if if I can still just give a little bit of pushback, the sure, one please. thing that, First that thing I, um, the one thing that I just maybe want to like, just if it, yeah, maybe it's not a pushback as much as a question mm-hmm. in the heat of the battle that, that Ukraine's in right now and uh, going beyond all the me- media manipulation and propaganda, there's a lot of people really suffering.
1: Absolutely. There's Absolutely.
0: already been a lot of violence. Um, Zelensky, whether we think he's a- an actor or whether we think he's a messiah <laughs> uh, is in, he's in serious danger and he's staying mm-hmm. there. Um, So in in spite of all the media propaganda and all that, there's a lot of real suffering and a lot of stakes on the line right now. And so how helpful is it right now to be uh, arguing, debating, and making these issues of discernment with media manipulation our primary talking points right now versus making our primary talking points, um, how should the West respond in helping Ukraine and denouncing uh putin's actions does that make sense absolutely my question yeah yeah
1: absolutely i mean and so far in this conversation we focused on historical context you know political and causes of the Mm -hmm. issue at hand if if you want to ask me what should christians be doing right now yeah and that's that's what i'm I'm wanting to
0: get towards so yeah that's what i'm making my way towards
1: right yeah so um look i think that you know I think now is both a time for discernment and for prayer, for um, for lamenting and and for being thoughtful. Uh, absolutely, Christians should lament the loss of life. There's a real loss of life. The the current reports are that there have been a million uh, Ukrainians who are fleeing for refugee for um, for refuge. You know, Ukrainians they they, they don't want to stay and fight this fight. Um, you know, essentially the Ukrainian. Um, uh, government is conscripting men 18 to 60 to stay and fight. And quite frankly, I don't think a lot of those guys want to stay and fight. Uh, so it's, it's very, it's true suffering. War is hell. It's one of the greatest manifestations of the sinfulness of man on, on clear display in the world. So, uh, I think we do need a, a posture of concern of prayer of lament for the loss of life. Um, and it's totally fine to not want to engage in conversations about propaganda's media narratives. You know, if I, if I were to say something, I'd say that it'd be easier for your average Christian to avoid those conversations if our leaders were more thoughtful and if the individuals who we look to to sort of filter and mitigate these um, issues for us weren't swept up in the narrative so often themselves. So Mm. that when you're just a pew sitting Baptist and you're trying to figure this out and, you know, you turn to somebody who sounds, you know, who's a Christian public figure, but they sound just like the mainstream media and that sort of raises a little bit of cognitive dissonance for you. Well, then that distracts you from doing things like just how can I pray for Ukraine? How can I Mm. think about that? So I, I I would encourage our leaders and our pastors to be different. Look, I listened to the briefing this morning by Dr. Mueller, and I thought he did a great job raising some wonderful points. I mean he he honed in on how um, this is uh, this is a great moment for evangelism. He said that in the in the face of real evil and suffering like a war, the postmodern illusion of you know competing truth claims just shatters. So if, if you're talking to a non-Christian neighbor or friend or coworker who's lamenting what's happening in Ukraine this is possibly an opportunity for you to share the gospel with them as they are being forced to deal with the fact that there's true good, there's true evil If there is, who decides that the judge of the universe, who is that God, who is his son, Jesus Christ. Um, And we all have that same evil within our heart. So I really appreciate Dr. Mueller's point on this as an opportunity for evangelism. I'd like to see more of that.
0: Yeah, that's good. I'm going to link that, that episode to the show notes for this. Uh, so if there's anybody listening who wants to go listen to uh al moeller's briefing episode from today this is march 3rd that we're recording uh you can find that in the show notes um what kind of responses should we be seeing expecting or demanding from our civic leaders And so talk so we cover christian response uh prayer discernment evangelism Mm -hmm. uh what about uh from our governmental leaders uh there's uh, uh, you know, should we expecting them to intervene militarily, escalate, deescalate? Uh, how do you think that they should respond?
1: Yeah, that's that's great. Well, I think that we should. Um, I do not think that we should commit troops on the ground. I don't think we should get embroiled in in another um you know war uh, on the European continent, uh, not with a nuclear power, not with Russia. I think we should be seeking uh, de-escalation as much as we can while holding Russia, Putin, um, and the oligarchs in Russia accountable. So some of the things we've done so far are fine, and as much as they'll have any effect, sanctions, seizing assets, um, you know, sort of seeking to isolate and impose economic costs on the leadership in Russia, but we have to bear in mind that we'll certainly have costs on the Russian people as well. Um, so I think that we should certainly sanction Russia. Sanctions sometimes take a while to kick in. I know this very well from working at the State Department. So sanctions often sound like you've done something when you haven't really done anything yet. You see people, you see yachts getting seized around the world, et cetera. I mean, those those might have some um, influence. I do think that NATO, um, European NATO countries, Germany, et cetera, should, uh, should uh, arm and equip Ukrainian military and fighters to be able to resist this real invasion. Russia is seeking to conquer Ukraine. And and we should not want to see that happen. Um, and so whether it, the U.S. has committed millions, hundreds of millions more in uh, security assistance to Ukraine, I think that's fine. That's a good thing. Um, yeah, so we should supply the Ukrainians as they fight for the country. We should really um, encourage the European countries to get up. You know, one of the key policy priorities of the trump administration was to get germany and the other nato countries to spend the two percent of gross domestic product um that they were supposed to be spending on uh on defense and they weren't doing it and and finally germany has announced that they're going to do it well we've been asking them to do it for four years because we realized that they've been coasting on american largesse from a military and security standpoint and we were concerned something like this would happen so we should continue that um, seriously pushing them to do that um, yeah but I think that we also we also need to look at ourselves that be that'd be the, the last point we should we should look at what we need to do for our own um, economy our own policies we should restart the Keystone pipeline we should uh, we should make it clear in no uncertain terms to Germany that they absolutely cannot Allow the completion and the functioning of Nord Stream two. If that whole thing is a sunken cost for whichever German company is is working it, I can't remember the name. It's Gazprom on the Russian side, I believe. Um, that's fine. That pipeline should never come online. Um, but I think that uh we should we should project we should project strength, um, but we should not commit our own troops to this to this fight.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree as well. Um what is, I know we're getting close to the end of our time here. So one last question to help our uh, audience make sense of all this, I think, and, and just something I realized, once again, looking at current media coverage, we hear a lot about sanctions, but I'm not sure if a lot of people actually know what that means. What does it mean that the U.S. or other countries are sanctioning Russia? Uh, so in just plain terms, can you help us to understand what, what sanctions are and why they're a good uh, deterrent or de-escalation measure?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in general sanctions are, you know, they're inhibiting, um, they're in, they're usually targeted towards certain companies, um, towards the governmental entities of Russia to prevent them from being able to engage in uh, global commerce, to sell, to buy, to cut them off from the economy. Essentially, a sanction is meant to stop you from engaging in global commerce. So, you know, we have had new sanctions that target Russia's uh, defense sector, which I'm sure that, you know, they threaten, you know, heavy fines and penalties for any U.S. company. That's that's really all we can control. U.S. companies who are doing business with, with Russia. So it's 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 one, sanctions are one big stop doing business with this sector, with this government, with these individuals. You know, they're not allowed to have access to, you know, certain economic opportunities, etc. So they, they, they hit sanctions hit economically, they don't hit from a military perspective. So, yeah, so they're trying to essentially, um, you know, our Assistant Secretary of State for South uh, and Central Asian Affairs, you know, he he had a recent quote, I'll just read it for you. He says, you know, my view is that it's going to be very hard for anyone to buy major weapons systems from Moscow in the coming months and years. I mean, so this is an issue, right? Turkey, Turkey, uh, who is a NATO uh, ally, um, has been purchasing Russian military equipment and that's a huge issue um and and we really dragged our feet on sanctioning uh turkey on on some of those dealings um so uh for example you know don't buy we will actually hopefully punish you now if you're buying russian military systems while they're invading ukraine and stuff like that
0: yeah okay awesome i I think that really helps um to clear up i like to to clarify terms that are, are being thrown around a lot that uh, people usually don't stop to define. So uh, so I think that's helpful for people who, once again, don't have uh, uh, extensive background in government or it's been a long time since they took civics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, William, we're wrapping up, getting close to the end of our time. Uh, do you want to tell our audience how they can uh, get in touch with you, follow your work, and learn more about what you're doing?
1: Sure. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for having me on. I think this is a great service that you're uh, seeking to do for the listeners, the subscribers of The Filter podcast and these are really important issues it sounds like you've thought through them well so I commend you for that this has been a really uh, interesting and uh, enlightening conversation um you can follow me on twitter at uh william underscore e underscore wolf I just joined about five months ago after uh I used twitter primarily as a news source for, for many many years and I find it to be a pretty useful news source quite frankly but uh, I went ahead and decided to uh, to join the fray for good or for ill uh, so you can find me on Twitter. I write for the Freedom Center, um, the Standing for Freedom Center out of Liberty University. And I'm also currently partnering with American Reformer, which is a new American um, Protestant publication that seeks to equip Christians to live faithfully in our increasingly hostile and confusing times, covering issues that maybe aren't going to be covered by sort of your mainstream evangelical publications. and also often covering issues that will be covered, but from potentially different angles than you would get. So uh, tonight I'll be hosting a Twitter space conversation with Dr. Scott Yainer on Christians and contraceptives. So we we publish articles and then we bring our um, our authors on to talk about them. So you can follow American Reformer at amreformer uh, on Twitter. So those are the three main ways. I'm always happy to try to help folks think through the tricky intersections of, of faith and politics, particularly after having spent you know, 10 years with my feet on the ground in Washington, D.C., seeing how these things work up close and personal. Like you said, there's a lot of confusion and I hope I'd like to try to bring some light to that confusion.
0: Yeah, well, I think you definitely brought us some clarity today. Uh, All that stuff you mentioned for our listeners will be linked in the show notes. So if you're interested in following William on Twitter uh, or looking into any of the uh, organizations, publications that he's working with, all that will be in the show notes. So make sure you click the link in the description below and I'll have that right there handy for you. William, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. Like I said before, I think you brought a lot of uh, clarity. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation. I think our listeners are going to be helped by it and enjoyed as well. So thanks for your time. Yeah,
1: thanks, Aaron. And I'll just close with this. We should certainly pray for peace in Ukraine. We know that the Lord directs the heart of the kings like water in His hands, and that mm. if it's in God's will, this conflict could cease today. Um, and and we should be we should be praying for that, for peace and protection, and for His will to be done on earth as it is. Amen. All right. Thanks, Eric.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronShamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the